So on the journey to fairy is often initiatory experience in and of itself. And so if we look at the witch as fairy and essentially trying to return to that place being the process, the crooked path, not the right-hand path, not the left-hand path, the one in between that's confusing and weird is the initiatory process, the path back to this place of origin that is in and itself a brutal initiatory experience. Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger, he mentions receiving a letter from a gentleman named William N. Grimstad regarding some mediumistic contactees who were allegedly in contact with an intelligence calling itself Jiro, J-I-R-O. Enclosed with the letter was the associated article from the Fortean News, the earlier incarnation of the Fortean Times. There were no further details except that the article also mentioned strange connections with the number 23 and the star Sirius. As soon as Illuminatus was published in September 1975, states Wilson and Cosmic Trigger, people started sending me letters about weird 23s in their own lives. The most interesting of these communications came from an English flying saucer journal, Fortean News, and was forwarded by a Mr. W.N. Grimstad of St. Petersburg, Florida. Wilson explained that the context concerns some mediumistic contactees, persons allegedly in contact with extraterrestrial higher intelligences by means of a trance medium. In regard to Downard, which in fact would become the first mention of Downard in print outside of a few society sections of local newspapers, Wilson says this, Later, Mr. Grimstad sent me a tape entitled Serious Rising, in which he and another conspiracy buff named Downard set forth the most absurd, the most incredible, the most ridiculous Illuminati theory of them all. The only trouble is that, after the weird data we have already surveyed, the Grimstead-Downard theory may not sound totally unbelievable to us. According to Sirius Rising, the Illuminati are preparing Earth in an occult manner for extraterrestrial contact. Part of the magical preparation, which only illuminated ones can understand, included A. The founding of Caltech at the 33rd degree of latitude. This was actually partially the work of aerospace engineer and occultist Jack Parsons, who was indeed a disciple of Crowley, as we have seen. In fact, so many of the scientists at Caltech were involved in Crowleyan magic, according to some reports, that the government grew concerned and sent in agents to infiltrate the OTO and find out how subversive it might be. L. Ron Hubbard, founder of Scientology, was admittedly a member of that lodge of the OTO at the time and later claimed he had infiltrated it for naval intelligence. B. 
the assassination of John F. Kennedy at the 33rd degree of latitude to fulfill the alchemical ritual of the killing of the divine king. And C, Wilson explains, the firing of the moon rockets from Cape Kennedy, again at the 33rd degree latitude. Wilson goes on to explain, I emphatically don't believe that rigmarole myself, although it is similar to the kind of cabalistic numerological magic to which the Illuminati would be inclined if they really existed. If you want to hear more of the Downer Grimstead numerological evidence, write to W.N. Grimstead at P.O. Box 14150, St. Petersburg, Florida, and ask how much he wants for the tapes. He sent me mine free, evidently hoping I would publicize them. See how obliging I am, Mr. Grimstead? The brief contact between Wilson and Grimstead provides some very important clues for our mystery. First, it establishes that Grimstead was indeed residing in St. Petersburg in 1975. This confirms Hoffman's statement that Grimstead was present for the All-American Barbecue. He describes where he, Downard, Grimstead, and Saunders were present. It also gives basis for the possibility that if they were all in St. Petersburg at that time, and Saunders was close friends with Kerouac, Downard and Kerouac may have been familiar with each other and conversed. Maybe those tapes of Downard and Kerouac are real. I also think that Wilson's description of the correspondence from Grimstead establishes another important detail. Grimstead read the Illuminatus trilogy and saw connections between the Downard theories and Wilson's fiction and was prompted to call his recordings with Downard the Serious Rising Tapes in direct reference to the Illuminatus trilogy and Wilson's Serious Connections. Or, the Serious Rising Tapes reference the Illuminatus trilogy directly and are yet another attempt by Grimstad and others to package their theories. After our investigation intersected with Hellier and William Grimstad's book, The Rebirth of Pan, which he wrote under the pseudonym Jim Brandon, it definitely became a priority to obtain a copy of the article that Grimstead sent Robert Anton Wilson. Outside of the reference to Downard, the article mentions that a group was channeling an entity calling itself Jiro, and we had testimony from local witnesses that strongly suggested channeling alien or non-human entities may have been occurring at the Oakwood Mental Health Facility here in Somerset in the 1970s. Here's what I think. Like, we're looking at this the wrong way. We're saying that the mental health situation is a consequence of some other problem, right? Right. But if you look at it the opposite way, that the mental health issue is generative of the knowledge that you're getting, so, like, schizophrenia and, and tripping on LSD are indistinguishable on an MRI. They are the same thing. It's literally the same state of your brain. So, like, if you are in a mental health place and there's schizophrenic sort of channeling the truth of the universe, right, and it's, it's fucked up, but that's how Carl Jung begins to question why things are the way they are is only because of his, issue, his dealings with mental health. And he started, and he obviously was... Right, like, yeah, and so it's it's like, 
it's like maybe these massive mental health institutions, you see weird shit happening, right? You're like doing the rounds at, at, on third shift. You, it's depressing. Like I know people that have worked there and everybody that I know have worked there have like gotten divorced. Like they, they had affairs while they were there or whatever. And it's like, it's dark because it's hard to cope with what you're seeing. Right. So like you combine that with legitimate sort of like tripping. Right. And all of a sudden you got people doing high magic in the basement of Oakwood because they're channeling these things. Right. Like if you look at any of the rituals, like if you look at John D for example, and how he gets to contact the Enochian spirits, it's through divination originally that he even finds a way to do it. Right. And so this like schizophrenia and LSD being the same thing, right. It's like, it's always happening around you. Like if you talk to the lady that pulls the little box down here, like you think of schizophrenia as like this massive distortion of reality, right? No, that woman walks on Cotter. She walks down to Central Avenue, drags her box down there. She's not in a hallucination state. Like her geography is your geography. She's walking on your streets, you know? And so like, but... She's, like, making bizarre associations between maybe, like, hot dogs and, you know, JFK or whatever. You know, like, some strain, which is what in magic is referred to as the coherences. Like, things that are things that are related that don't seem to be related, right? And so, like, I think that, that there's a connection between the state of schizophrenia and... Like being exposed to it in a, like a massive level. I'm I'm just using schizophrenia as an example, but being exposed to it at like a really concentrated level, that may be a way of channeling this information for doing these rituals that ends up spilling out into the community because there are people working it out. As I mentioned previously, I was finally able to get a copy of the article William Grimstead sent Robert Anton Wilson in 1976. A fellow researcher and collector of the Fortean Times in England had the article in his collection and was gracious enough to send it to me. The article, Portrait of a Fault Area, written by Paul Devereaux and Andrew York in 1973-1974, reads like the fucking Penny Royal mystery. The investigators are interested in the way that a specific place in Leicestershire, England, affects the lives and history of the people that live there. There are meteors, geomagnetic anomalies, high strangeness, UFO sightings, and channeling alien intelligences, and even an oak cult. It all sounds strangely familiar and insanely synchronistic, considering how Grimstead and Downard made an appearance in the Penny Royal story. As the authors Devereaux and York explain, the material we present here is related to the work we have been doing on neglected aspects of Leicestershire lore. We have approached the landscape in question from several viewpoints, like peeling layers off an onion. We will attempt to indicate that unusual factors can indeed be associated with the area and we will conclude with some exploratory thoughts that might relate in a wider sense to Fortean and lost knowledge 
fields of inquiry. The Leicestershire area contains places that were formed through ancient volcanic activity connected to the major fault system between Kent and Pennines all the way up to Scotland, known as the Thringstone Fault. But what's more, early in part one of the two-part article, Devereux and York establish that the region has a history of meteor activity and falling meteorites, which we immediately felt was a strange correlation with the Pennyroyal mystery. The fault activity in Leicestershire also tracks with the New Madrid fault system that begins here in western Kentucky and spreads northeast, some fingers of which cut through Pulaski County and overlap with the Kentucky anomaly. Could fault activity also be adding to the strangeness of the Pennyroyal? And that, too, the Kentucky anomaly, was right on the mark. The authors also discovered high geomagnetic fields in the Leicestershire area, which correlated with a high incidence of UFO activity. They also explain how folklorists believe the real King Lear founded the city of Leicester and is supposedly buried in a vault beneath the nearby Soar River. They link Lear with the pre-Roman British god Lyre, who is connected to the oak and the ritual of rebirth and renewal. And the authors point out that June 10th through July 7th is the oak month, and that the mid-month mark of June 24th is the day when the oak god is sacrificially burned alive for renewal. John Keel also, incidentally, found that June 24th was one of the five days of the year with major UFO and occult importance. There's also an incredible connection here between Devereux and York's article, their investigation into an area of high geomagnetic fields and meteor strikes, as well as local folklore involving, for all intents and purposes, a green man cult in the form of an oak cult that relates to the oak as a doorway or gateway and the killing of the king, the oak king, in a death and renewal rite. It's too fucking uncanny. But the strange correlations and synchronicities don't stop there. There were major correlations between the psychic landscape of Pennyroyal and Leicestershire. As Devereux and York explain concerning the psychic landscape, quote, the most shadowy and elusive aspects of any landscape are those which relate to the mental lives of its inhabitants, dreams, prophecies, other world communications. They slip away, difficult to define or even more difficult to learn about in the first place. You can only record fragments that have come our way, the tip of the psychic iceberg. It's in part two in the section about the psychic landscape of Leicestershire that the story of the channeled entity calling itself Jiro is discussed. During our research, we came across reports of Hinkley-based contactees who were active all the way back to 1966. They employed automatic writing and trance mediums, according to the reports that were discovered. We set out to trace this group, now dormant for nine years. We finally located a member of the group who had become custodian of the writings and tape recordings. The Ouija, automatic writing, and their medium were the only ways the group ever contacted the ultra-terrestrials, to use John Keel's term. An entity that frequently communicated with the group called himself Jiro, 
a ludicrous appellation of the sort that seems common to many contactee accounts. The number 23 was communicated repeatedly both in the writings and through the medium, but the members of the group could never understand why. Some of the entities claimed that they lived on Earth millennia ago and that telepathy had preceded speech. One entity claimed that it was from Lyra, L-E-H-R-A, or Lahar, L-E-H-A-R. Sagittarius was also mentioned, and Saturn. On tape, the entities speaking through the medium displayed different characters and voices, all with heavy Asian accents. The communications contain references to the numbers 666 and 33, sometimes 333, as well as 23. Apart from Jiro, other named entities included characters called Mil, M-I-L, Septa, S-E-P-T-A, Sigs, S-I-G-S, and Galil, G-I-L-I-L. Devereaux and York also detail how the Leicestershire landscape is a supernatural landscape of spook water, phantom pipers, ley lines, and standing stones along old Roman roads where witnesses met phantom black dogs and other strange creatures, even fairies, and numerous encounters with ghostly apparitions, especially near the ancient churches and graveyards built on old pagan ritual sites. Yeah, I mean, like, for all I know, the everything in the world does wind up in Somerset. Like, maybe it's like, you know, they keep on talking about, like, the donut universe or, or the idea that the end is the beginning is the end. Maybe the end is the beginning is Somerset. <laughs> well, my name is Joshua Cutchin. I am a an author of, uh, of paranormal nonfiction, or as I prefer to say at dinner parties, speculative nonfiction. That's the way that you sound less crazy when you introduce yourself. And I have five books all about various forms of high strangeness. A lot of what I look into is the comparative aspects between things. Um, so how are Bigfoot reports like UFO reports? How are accounts of the fairy folk like you know UFO and alien abduction reports and stuff like that? And that's where I really, really find a lot of enjoyment is in the comparison of these things because, you know, it sort of takes the pressure off any single... Um, any single account being, you know, quote unquote, true or not, you know, to me, it doesn't matter after a certain point if it's true or not. At the end of the day, you've got somebody from, you know, Casey, Iowa, who's saying something that sounds like something from, you know, a, a 13th century text that's printed on vellum or something you know, over in, over in Europe. It's like there's no way this person should have any sort of knowledge of this. But this motif, this archetype is still expressing itself uh, through mankind. Uh, you know, centuries later. And I find that sort of thing really to be the most compelling thing about 14 studies in general. Spent a good deal of time looking at the work of like Paul Devereaux, that sort of thing. Um, oh, no shit, man. Really? The Paul yeah. stuff? Yeah, well, I, I haven't really, I haven't published on it, but it's, it's, there's, I've got a whole chapter dedicated to the corpse road thing and it's, I see such a strong correlation between those corpse roads and, uh, I mean, this is something that Paul Devereaux talked about, was the corpse roads seem to align with these shamanic roads, especially that you'll find like um, the American Southwest, but also linking different, um, different sacred sites for indigenous people the world over. And the idea was that these lines were straight because that's just how spirits travel, right? Um, and by extension, that's how shamans travel when they're disembodied and, and you're doing their shamanic duties. They they travel in straight lines as well. So it's almost like you've got these way stations. And I see a lot of similarities between that and uh, 
you know, this old UFO idea that was just discarded in the 60s, but I still find really interesting, which is this idea of orthotony. It was pioneered by Amy Michel. Ami Michel, I guess, would be the French pronunciation. Um, but uh, Michel believed that you could track... Um, you could track UFO pathways onto these, what he, what he called were great circles, which of course, when you take a great circle on a globe and you stretch it out, like it's a sine wave, but it kind of looks like a line. So he felt that, you know, UFOs traveled on grids and uh, some of these grids overlap with, with what are perceived as ley lines, which are between sacred sites. So it seems to all be speaking to this same straight um, line spirit path. Now, you know, orthotony was pretty much discredited um, discredited in the 60s um but you know we still see a lot of those ideas um influencing a lot of the way that we talk about today like orthotony was um the reason why jacques valet decided to go to the comparative folklore route like he was all about orthotony he said he saw the data could be ascribed to mere chance and he abandoned it and sort of went the comparative folklore route similarly um john keel even after orthotony was discredited um, was still talking about it and sort of where he got his window area idea was from a lot of these orthotony um, alignments. The one that Ami Michel talked about a lot was what he called the Bavic line that was going through uh, Belgium and France, if memory serves. Um, so yeah, I, I see that and I see, you know, UFOs showing up around sacred sites and it sounds like we're just looking at the way that spirits travel or the way that, you know, shaman, uh, shamans travel when they're disembodied. And uh, that ties into these corpse roads, which, you know, would often link the town to the church and sometimes would just go absolutely straight or sometimes they would deliberately be more circuitous to throw off the spirits and that's why you see this motif of spirits being arrested by complexity you know it's still a thing in the uh in uh the american south i mean obviously less so nowadays but if you look at you know populations that are a little bit more isolated like the the gola populations in the south carolina low country around defusky island and stuff that if you put out a colander or like a, a broom on your front porch, um, it would protect you from the boo hag, right? <laughs> because it would get there and it would have to count all the holes in the colander or it would have to count all the straws in the broom. So it would be you know, stopped by this complexity. It's the same reason that dream catchers work, right? Because the spirits get caught in the, in the labyrinth and you know, you've got witch bottles in Europe that are tangles of thread and just labyrinths in general used for protection in that sense because spirits seem to travel in straight lines. Yeah, and you look into those like those corpse roads and stuff, those death roads in, in Europe, and a lot of those, you know, a lot of the paths that the wild hunt would take um, to this to this day. You know, the idea that you know goes by various names: Odin's hunt, uh, you know, the wild hunt, King Arthur's ride, any number of things. But like, they would often be along these old Roman Roman roads as well. So and again, that that chain of custody idea. Something really sort of reshaped the way that I thought of roads. And somebody said to me once, they said, it was a substitute teacher, and he said, the reason for the size of the space shuttle's engine boosters, you know, is, is because of the size of a horse's ass. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And his logic was that, you know, horses were on paths and the, the paths were wide enough for the horses, and those became roads, two horses wide, which is why, that's why roads are as wide as they are. That's why a lane is as wide, because it's two horses, right? <laughs> and then the, the, you know, the, the rocket boosters had to come in uh, as parts on the road, so it was just an interesting change of, chain of causation that I'd never thought of, and the idea that, like, a road is, is so hardly ever just a road, right? I mean, it's, it's, 
it's years of of the same it was probably started out you know obviously not the case with like newer interstates and stuff but like a lot of these like old roads are like they were probably game trails and then they were footpaths and then they were stagecoach roads and then they're you know all the way up until what they are nowadays it's like this wild chain of custody all the way since you know basically time immemorial that's just fascinating that's a that's a wild idea you could probably expand that into a book could you could you talk about genius loci a little bit and explain to people kind of what that is and how how the the, the spirit of the place because I mean you know what we're talking about this you know you, you think about these places it's like the place is almost reflecting you know the, it, it's just reflecting the people in a way uh, yeah no, I know I, I totally and I think that might it might be reflecting even more uh, intensely than we than we quite realize um, I'll sort of explain what that means. Uh, yeah, this genus loci, or I've seen some things where you can maybe say gena, genus locorum, if it's singular, I think of my Latin's right. But anyway, um, spirits of place evolve perhaps from a couple of different places. Um, there's one line of thought that they evolve from your typical pagan de- deities, especially like minor pagan deities that might be associated with a specific spring or a specific mountain or a specific, you know, tree or a specific forest or grove of trees. But the idea that they're um, sort of the embodiment of a place, um, you know, you, you sort of have to tread lightly here because you sort of get into theosophic Paracelsian elemental territory where you've got, you know, little sprites that are taking care of the garden and helping the plants grow. But a lot of the ideas tended to be very much that places had their own spirit attached to them. Now, now what I meant by like the reflecting us, um, there's a lot of overlap and blurring lines between the human dead and these spirits of place. So obviously, you know, you do have things like pagan deities that are for the most part tied to you know, the revered dead, but it was pretty common practice to have someone who would die in the community, a chieftain or a warrior or something, and you'd bury them at a place. And over time, they would uh, become associated with that place quite closely. And the memory of the actual person would sort of fade and blend into myth. And you'd actually end up with basically a person kind of becoming the genus loci. I mean, you see this a lot in, in places like, uh, Ireland and the British Isles, where you have these tombs that are like, well, somebody's buried there, but they're attributed to this mythical figure that, you know, just there's no really differentiating between the myth and, and the reality of it. Um, you find this a lot, you know, like shamanism. The Buryat shamans would actually fashion their own coffin and uh, be buried in a place after death and uh, exhumed and, and buried in a new place where they would eventually become over time the, the spirit of this place. And so you look at that and you look at, you know, the, the, the ties of the fairies, which most of us would associate with that sort of spirit of place idea, that sort of theosophic idea of being elementals, right? But if, if you look before theosophy, most cultures that thought of fairies tended to think of them in that in that context of the dead. And of course, this is just where my mind is right now because this is the project that I'm working on. But you have this real blurring of, of the dead taking on the responsibilities of a place as well. So there seems to be an evolution on the other side, but it really does speak to almost, I think, sort of an animistic interpretation of the landscape where you have, you know, it, it, there's not really, once you get beyond this realm, there's not really a whole lot of differentiation between what was human dead and what was the animal dead and what was the spirit. Like, it just all seems to be laundered through bodies and through different responsibilities, from what I can tell. 
And, and that's the thing that struck me so much about Penny Ronald season one is that like, in some ways it's unique, but in some ways the way that these stories come out are just so textbook and like you listen to them and there's like a thousand different directions that you could you could take with them you're like yeah it all completely tracks like (laughs) it's not like oh there's a hitch here and that doesn't quite fit like it all completely fucking tracks man it really does in appalachia and the penny royal region there are no corpse roads and this stands true for most of america there are no roads for the dead not like the roads for the dead that were constructed in europe which were built in straight lines and may be connected to a deeper aspect of the phenomena. And in England, especially Leicestershire, there's the old tradition of hedgerows as liminal highways separating the natural from the supernatural and allowing entities to move between the worlds. There are ancient stories and traditions in England and Ireland which hold that witches live on the other side of the hedgerow. One side of the hedge was seen as the civilized world, the village. And on the other side of the hedgerow lay the uncivilized world, the wild. The realm of the witch and the supernatural. The hedge witch acted as healer and cunning woman, gathering herbs and plants in the woods, the fields, and the hedges. Hedge witches received their knowledge of the ancient ways from older family members or mentors who also knew the secrets of the hedge. These practices, often referred to as the green craft, were a mixture of magic and folklore. Hedgerows were often constructed from hawthorns. The name hawthorn originates from the Anglo-Saxon word hegthorn or hegdorn, meaning hedgethorn, a reference to its use as a hedge shrub planted along property and field boundaries in England. These hedges were full of medicinal and magical plants that cunning women would harvest. And it's from this that we get the term hedge witch. The word hag shares the same etymology as the word witch. And the old traditions hold that witches ride along hedges which were a visible line between this realm and the next. Maytree is the most commonly used folk name as the hawthorn's blossoms appear early in May coinciding with Beltane. Other names include Barakaz, which is Welsh for bread and cheese, Hagthorn, Mayflower, Pixie's Pears, Cuckoo's Heads, Maybush, and, of all things, Chucky Cheeses. After getting swept up in this mystery, and after the release of season one of Penny Royal, we had the pleasure of making many new friends and finding others that were similarly drawn into whatever this phenomenon was. Maybe it's always just been the Kentucky anomaly drawing people here or connecting people. And maybe it was some magical ritual working performed by the Bait Cabal or some other group in the Mount Victory area that wove strands outward into the world and connected us with all these other people. And maybe we were always meant to find each other wandering the same road. Mana Aylin is the host of the Witches of the End Times podcast and Celeste Mott is a full-time tarot reader and psychic consultant. Both are occult practitioners and were drawn to the same mysteries and the same magic that we were trying to decipher and understand. Both came to visit us here in Somerset with their own pieces of the puzzle, and we spent time during the dog days of Sirius in mid-July discussing the phenomena, magical roads, and how all of this 
was connected. I think, well, that also, what you were just talking about, brings up the idea of heeding the call. Like, if you consent to begin that connection in whatever way, you know, in, in whatever way you conceptualize consent, you know, picking up the phone is a great metaphor because, you know, basically you you assent to experience this thing, to make this connection, to help this person. The threat is there, you know? Um, and... It, you know, it's happened to me with clients who I have like initially said, yeah, I'll, you know, help you out. And then maybe I got a little bit too busy or something came up and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't help them in the immediate way that I had planned to. And the thread is there and things will pop up until I actually address the issue. You know, it's almost like you're haunted by that client or their experience or, you know, and I think when you look at the phenomena and you look at Somerset, Kentucky and the Kentucky anomaly, like I had no plans to be sitting here, Nathan Isaac, in Somerset, Kentucky right now. It was not the plan. Uh, this was a very strange set of circumstances that led to me being in this room. Uh, and I'm still feeling kind of like it's not real. So, yeah. Well, even in like a lot of energy work circles, which is very different than Penny Royal, I know, of the original, of what you guys often talk about, but there's this idea of cords, that you can have cords connected to people, and that's a neutral term. It's not just like, oh, like, it's a bad thing. But oftentimes, if you want to look even in, like, regular people's lives, there's this obsession with closure that people will have sometimes, where you'll have these roads, these connections, these threads, uh, with someone where you had kind of an agreement to do some type of work together, whether it was engage in a relationship or be a, a mother and a child and something will happen that will kind of sever that process from happening and people will kind of get plagued by these weird, they want to get away from these people and they're constantly showing back up. You have this weird unfinished business and then eventually, inevitably, most situations will shove people back together to or in a fiery end or some weird conversational closure to like get those, to basically complete something. And then those cords will just disappear. And then you'll oftentimes never see that person again. And it's like, it, you keep getting yanked back together. There's something that goes back and forth that connects you. I, I often think too, like if you're thinking of someone and you can't stop and you don't know why, and then you get a phone call from them, I think that's all part of it as well. Absolutely. I've most of the times where I've personally been like, maybe this isn't for me has been when it's leaked into the people that in my life that have nothing to do with any of this. I, you know, I moved in February and I have a roommate who doesn't who purposely didn't watch Hellier because she said, I just don't want to be initiated. And I was like, you're smarter than me, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes I'll get really deep into things and she'll have no idea what's going on. And even though I try not to do this, I'll essentially track mud through the door and weird stuff will happen in the house. And she, she's a very spiritual person, but it lives a very different approach to that than I do. And I've had to be really honest with myself. And I'm like, if I'm going to live with this person, I cannot do this like this anymore. And it was getting to a point and I just kind of dropped everything. And then again, that's when the rubber band snapped last time for me. And that's, again, why Celeste and I are friends. And you're like one of my closest friends now. And I don't understand how <laughs> that happened yeah. so fast. And it's the snap of the rubber band. Like that is the reason we are friends. We would not be friends if it was not, frankly, for the phenomena. And that's weird. Because I'm like, that's really pro 
affecting my mundane life, my day-to-day, quote-unquote, normal life on a very profound level. And while I think in this instance that was wonderful and glorious and I wouldn't change it, there are times where I'm like, is that for the best, though? It was still a traumatic experience, Mm -hmm. like, unfortunately. Yeah. That that trauma bonds, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Or like what perhaps began as a trauma bond Mm -hmm. and then evolved. Yeah, so I don't know. It's like, and that's, again, the hangman in a nutshell. It's an uncomfortable experience that forces you to look at things differently Mm -hmm. and then reevaluate your life moving forward. I have to say, we didn't, again, we did an Estes session like right before we came over here and we asked, so, so Celeste was in in the box with the headphones and the recorder going and I'm asking questions that she can't hear. And one of the first things was, you, you said, it's a new moon. And that was, then you even made a weird face, like, cause that was weirdly on the nose cause it is a new moon tonight. And then I asked like, what should we be doing? And as I was saying, what should we do tonight? You said feed. And then I forget what it was after that. Or it was like, I have a feeder or something. But I mean, Penny Rolls and Egregore at this point. So is Hellier. And we're sitting here putting our observer attention on it, on the new moon. We're kind of feeding the Egregore right now. Yeah, you're right. It's true. And that brings up like tulpas and Egregores. Like you feed something and it will manifest. And I mean, really, that's a fundamental pr- principle of magic is like what you attend to grows. Like that's the, that's manifestation in a nutshell. After we released season one of Penny Royal, I began receiving lots of communications from a range of different people, from researchers to witnesses of phenomena, to people who believe they had visited us through psychic projections and out-of-body experiences. I was intrigued by most of it, and there were genuine leads provided by many people, especially local witnesses who had stories about Pulaski County, and even a few new details about Alexander Guterma, Mr. X, while he was the owner of the Mount Victory Mine. Some of the most interesting and fruitful messages came from an esoteric Christian researcher. The gist of these messages involved the connection between Pan and the devil and how I was aligning myself with Pan and his forces. The messages weren't threatening and were more so laying out the esoteric foundation for the connections between Pan and Christian doctrine. And there are many, many connections. Inevitably, though, Each message ended with, Pan will be crushed. There were also some extremely strange synchronicities with these messages. Don't forget the hanged man was repeated over and over again. Don't forget the hanged man. And this was interspersed throughout this entire message at various points, not necessarily related to what was being discussed, just over and over again. Don't forget the hanged man. I knew it was a card in the tarot deck, one of the major arcana, but that was the extent of what I knew personally about the hanged man. Probably the most common claim regarding the martyrdom of St. Peter is that he was crucified upside down. As the story goes, Peter refused to be crucified upwards in the same way that Jesus was, so he requested an upside down death. Because of this, some researchers believe that the hanged man is St. Peter. In his 1910 book, The Pictorial Key to the Tarot, A.E. Waite, the designer of the Rider-Waite tarot deck, wrote about the symbol of the hanged man. 
The gallows from which he is suspended forms a towel cross, while the figure from the position of the legs forms a filfot cross. There is a nimbus about the head of the seeming martyr. It should be noted, one, that the tree of sacrifice is living wood with leaves thereon, and two, that the face expresses deep entrancement, not suffering, and three, that the figure as a whole suggests life and suspension, but life and not death. It has been called falsely a card of martyrdom, a card of prudence, a card of the great work, a card of duty. I will say very simply on my own part that it expresses the relation in one of its aspects between the divine and the universe. Two things are extremely important here, especially to the Penny Royal Mystery. Long before I was ever prompted to begin looking into Somerset in Pulaski County and the strangeness associated with this particular place, I knew Dan Dutton and that he was initiated into the Aoife religion by his Baba, Ajala. That's right, Dan, Dan Dutton, is initiated into Aoife on the path to become a priest. It was from Dan that I learned about Aoife divination and its relationship to randomness. Also, most people don't realize that Dan brought Ajala and other Aoife priests to Somerset, Kentucky, where they performed ritual dances to summon their Yoruban gods. That's the first strange thing. And here's the second. In the Los Garabio African-American tarot deck, the 12th card of the Major Arcana is the Observer, depicting the Nigerian god Ifa of fate and destiny blindfolded and surrounded by eyeballs floating in the sky. The traditional little white book indicates that this card, a major departure from the traditional hanged man, centers on an initiation ritual. It's extremely strange that in the pursuit of understanding how the hanged man connects to Pan, I discovered that the hanged man in the African-American tarot deck is depicted as the Yoruban god Ifa, and that Dan, Dan Dutton, author of the Fawn Opera and self-professed last true devotee to Pan, has been initiated into the Ifa religion. And by the time season one of Pennyroyal was released, we had found ourselves knee-deep in second-order cybernetics and how magic and synchronicity were related to observers and feedback loops. And this itself, the discovery of second-order cybernetics, is extremely strange. I found it hard to understand or even accept or believe that in this hanged man card, Aoife was represented as the observer, and there was this initiation and this literal depiction of second-order cybernetics. How could it be that all of these things intersect? That the hanged man, which connects to St. Peter and to Pan's Grotto, and this idea that Jesus built the first Christian church on Pan's Grotto, and then to find out that in this African-American tarot deck that the hanged man card has been replaced with the observer card, and that that card depicts Aoife, and that Dan Dutton, devotee to Pan, is also an initiate into the Aoife religion. So much of our research now focuses on second-order cybernetics and circularity and loops, feedback loops. It's just so fucking weird that all of those things conform to a configuration of some sort, that it's something strangely definable. 
the idea of of it's a shifting of perspective. And I feel like that makes the hanged man card so important right now with everything that's happening, you know? It's like the card of our times in a way, you know? Right. And how, but how can we shift our perspective if we have algorithms determining where we're looking? I know, right? (laughs) But see, it's like they're watching us. That's why that observer card even has even a, a weirder and more sort of, you know, prescient meaning because it's like, look at all the eyes on yeah, but he's blindfolded. He doesn't give a shit. Right. He but yeah, he can't yeah, he doesn't see the he doesn't see them watching. His initiation and his journey and his path is internal. So you know, it's kind of interesting too, because he doesn't have a physical path in front of him. He's at the at the at the edge of the cliff, which also makes me think of the hermit. Like in some ways, he reminds me of of your traditional hermit card, that 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 sage that that lives at the peak of a mountain. And and you know, mountains are this very natural sacred space. Um, and so I really like that he's got this blindfold on and um, it obviously shows that, that the things that are going on around him do not matter. He's got to go inwards to get the answer. He needs to learn how to have faith in himself and, uh, you know, maybe face his his dark side too. A lot of people think of the hanged man along with some other of the, the the major arcana cards like you know the the devil death tower the moon they look at those as kind of like the, the, the you know facing your shadow self and and maybe that's what initiation is too it makes me think of again anana descending into the underworld um, and it makes me think too of the idea of gates um, you know you walk through gates and if you want to get to the other world or if you want to get to paradise you have to shed ego and you have to shed the things that will that are impure and wouldn't, you know, benefit you in this otherworldly, you know, magical space. The other half of the the major arcana is the arc of night. They're a lot more shadowed, not bad, but they're a little bit more ambiguous, a lot more of the misunderstood cards. You got the tower, death death in there, um, the world, but you also have the hanged man. And to me, that is walking, you're on a quest, you're on a path, through the fool's journey, but it's nighttime and you somehow stumble upon a hunter's trap that then is a big net that sucks you up into a tree. And now you are essentially at mercy of someone else coming to help cut you down or figuring it out yourself. It's an involuntary suspension that is making you rethink what it is you're doing on this path and making you look at the exact moment of everything you're carrying, what it is you're doing, what are the actual threats? Like for me, it's a forced reevaluation. And that is kind of like the symbology that I put on it myself. Personally, I don't know a lot of like the specific symbols associated with the hanged man, but it sounds like Celeste might. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, and you know, Mana's gnosis on the hanged man is like as a hunter's trap, I think is very apt in that way because you know, we were talking about it earlier with you. Both Mana and I at separate times have been like, actually, this is a little too much. And maybe this is not the best for me to be like part of all of this. And maybe I shouldn't be. And it's like a little overwhelming or whatever. And, and I'm going to try and pull out of it, actually. And it's like every time you try and pull out, if you've attended to it enough, if you put enough energy in, if you've looked at it, it's like, I don't think so. 
But you don't get to wriggle out of this trap right now. I'm going to pull you back. It's threads, threads, threads. It's very disconcerting, actually. There have definitely been times along this journey where I've been like, I don't know who is pulling the strings here. And that makes me really deeply freaked out. We've had conversations about that. I think it's funny, even the the language that we use, like when people will say something weird with anything with spiritual or occult, they'll be like, oh, you're making that up. Well, that still implies you're creating something. So that's interesting to me because if we are making up these synchronicities, if we are making up these occurrences, there's still weird events that are happening and we are engaging with or as observers or putting our attention on these things, even if we are creating them, it's just, again, it's still so weird, like whatever direction it's coming from. Well, it's like glamour, right? It's the thing that you put on top of something else um, and this sort of layered reality where things exist. I don't know. I mean, I, I the further down all these rabbit holes, these like Warren, this network of Warrens I go, the more I'm like, there is no objective reality. You know, there is no one single timeline. Time isn't real. Everything's fake. I'm probably hallucinating in like a, in a cave somewhere like 700 million years ago. I don't know anymore. <laughs> Alfred Watkins proposed in his seminal book, The Old Straight Track, that mounds, moats, beacons, and markstones fall into straight tracks, sided lines throughout Britain with fragmentary evidence of trackways on the alignments. He believed that megalithic monuments were not placed in a random way, but that they fell upon what he called ley lines, which connected these places of power. And these megalithic monuments and stone circles were carefully constructed ceremonial complexes, constructed for specific purposes, and without a doubt, many were built by skilled astronomers using these sites to track astronomical alignments as well as solar and lunar activity. According to archaeologists, the ancient Irish were the first to record a solar eclipse more than 5,000 years ago. The Celtic people believe that some of this knowledge was taught to humans by supernatural entities they called the Tuatha de Danane, which arrived on the Irish Isles in flying ships surrounded by dark clouds. It's worth noting again that the Tuatha de Danane have appeared again and again while we've researched the Penny Royal Mystery, possibly linking this phenomena with the Fae. Do meaningful events cluster around ley lines? so many so that areas or places located on that ley line began to be regarded as strange? Isn't that one of the defining features of high strangeness? When too many coincidences, too many synchronicities cluster in one place, it becomes difficult to explain away as nothing. If we were to draw lines between strange places, would we discover correlations? And are these lines of correlation indicative of ley lines? lines connecting aggregations of strangeness. We've also been exploring the idea that places of power are no longer just ancient religious sites or places where great battles took place or where something mystical may have happened. Modern lays may now connect places of power in a modern sense. They may connect industrial sites, factories, nuclear plants, and data centers. It would be interesting to look at ley lines in North America and trace their correlations to fiber optic cabling conduits. If ley lines correlate to the paths and transmission lines of ancient information and knowledge, then do modern ley lines correlate to the flows of information and data along modern fiber optic networks 
that spread across America like a vast neural network. Um, and in Ireland, they had the ferry paths. The ferry paths were also supp supposed to be kind of like these, <laughs> you know, these spirit highways. And they were also indicated by crosses and crossroads and bridges and churches. And so the way I like to think of it is a ley line is this, this, this energetic vein. And if you can tap into it, there may be the opportunity to have a spiritual experience or maybe even enhance your ability to understand sacred wisdom or maybe enhance your magical capabilities. Researching ley lines is really difficult because it's so easy to fall down this slippery slope of, um, you know, love and light and starseed energy and, you know, meeting with Merlin off the side of the road in Virginia and all of a sudden, you know, being a woodland elf, I don't know. It's, it's very easy for it to go metaphysical really quickly. But there was this one book that was written by Alfred Watkins, and it's called The Old Straight Track. And that is considered to be kind of like the foundation of the theory of ley lines, even though he ended up not calling them ley lines. He called them straight tracks. But it, it depends on who you talk to about what a ley line is. People will give you a couple different definitions. Ley lines are supposed to be these straight lines that are created by connecting sacred places. So, for example, there's this really well-known ley line that goes through um, goes through UK, and it's called the St. Michael's Ley Line, and it's supposedly aligned with the path of the sun on May 8th, which is the festival of St. Michael. What's really interesting is that St. Michael's ley line, along it, there are all of these ley markers. So ley markers are said to be, you know, sacred spaces like standing stones, uh, stone circles. They could be even, you know, water, you know, places of water. Crossroads are another ley marker and churches. So it's really cool along the St. Michael's line, there's like St. Michael churches. But another interesting thing too is that the St. Michael ley line actually goes through Glastonbury and Avebury Stone Circle and Glastonbury is located in Somerset. So um, yeah, so, so ley lines are meant to be these straight lines that, that they connect, connect to different sacred places. In the spring 1978 issue of the Fortean Times magazine, William Grimstead wrote an essay called Fateful Fayette about the high strangeness associated with places that are named Fayette. Other researchers have subsequently expanded on Grimstead's research, particularly Grimstead's close friend, cryptozoologist and Fortean researcher, Lauren Coleman. In Coleman's writings, he acknowledges that most places with the name Fayette are so named because of General Lafayette, close friend of George Washington, but Coleman suggests that Lafayette paid a visit to certain places in America because they were inherently symbolic and mystical. Quote, the cities, towns, and counties across the United States, which are the Fortean hotspots linked to the Fayette factor, are tied to the renamed Masonic lodges and affiliated sites that the Marquis de Lafayette visited on his grand tour of the country in 1824 to 1825. 
His visits were highly ritualized happenings in which he is involved with laying many cornerstones. The locations where he is taken to visit are a virtual roadmap of the special places in this land. As Lexington writer Jeffrey Scott Holland noted in his article regarding the Fayette Factor, General Lafayette extensively traveled the nation. He was a beloved figure by all after he offered his assistance in the Revolutionary War. And in 1825, when George Washington's close friend and ally came back to America to tour the colonies, a wave of Lafayette hysteria swept through the land. Towns, cities, counties, schools, and more suddenly found the honor of donning the Fayette Lafayette moniker. Is it simply coincidence that odd things happen in places with that name because there are so many places named Fayette? Or, as Lauren Coleman suggests, was General Lafayette visiting specific places in America because those places possess sorcerous and mystical qualities? No doubt Fortean conspiracist James Shelby Downard believed it to be the latter. As Downard explains in King Kill 33, mystical toponymy pertains to the magic and mystery of words, word wizardry, and the Masonic science of symbolism. While it differs from the old straight track rediscovered by Watkins in the early part of this century, in that his alignments or ley lines pertain strictly to the uses of Earth's sensitive sites or power sites for ancient religious uses, and no one has thus far documented any political or modern Kabbalist or sorcerous uses. For Downard, these inherently mystical places form a network of connecting lines, shuttling sorcerous energies and currents between them. And for reasons we have yet to discover, they somehow correspond to the mapping of the Earth's geography. Downard continues to explain, my study of place names imbued with sorcerous significance necessarily includes lines of latitude and longitude and the divisions of degrees in geography and cartography. I personally do believe there's something to mystical toponymy. There's something about the phenomena that appears to be outside of how human beings observe and interact with linear causal time. The circuit formed between people and place and events, the circuit formed between people, place, and events is outside the scope of what we currently understand to be cause and effect in an almost quantum way. According to Andrew Collins, psychic questing is using intuitively inspired thoughts and information for creative purposes, be it the exploration of history, the search for hidden artifacts, or simply the quest for enlightenment. It can begin with a strange dream, a visionary experience, or an overwhelming compulsion, which prompts the person to embark on a sequence of discovery. This often involves uncovering confirmatory facts, visiting sites and places revealed only by intuition, and communicating with perceived external forces and influences through either meditational practices or magical processes. Often this takes the form of contact with a so-called genius loci or spirit of the place, which provides information in order that the quest might continue on to the next level. However, psychic questing does not have to involve outside exploration. It can simply revolve around archive research or just further magical or psychic experiments 
which all help the quester to gain a better idea of what they need to know. Collins says the modern revival in psychic questing began in October 1979 when he and Graham Phillips discovered a short steel sword bearing a copper plate with the inscription Mia Nia Fore Maria on its blade. They found the unusual sword behind the stone foundations of a footbridge at a place called Knight's Pool in the English county of Worcestershire. The sword also had a monogram at the base of the hilt which resembled the personal insignia of Mary, Queen of Scots. This caused Collins and Phillips to believe it was originally cast in the late 18th century by supporters of the exiled Stuart dynasty of British kings. They also uncovered evidence that it was possibly used in pseudo-Masonic ceremonies by a secret order. The discovery of the Meania sword was followed later by the recovery of a 17th century brass casket containing a small green agate stone. This was discovered by Graham Phillips while he was standing alone at a spot on the River Avon, not far from Knight's Pool, known as the Swan's Neck. He and Collins believed that the Swan was a secret code name for Mary, Queen of Scots, and so they became convinced that the Green Stone, or Meania Stone, had once been in a finger ring worn by Mary, Queen of Scots. They believed it had passed into the possession of Robert Catsby, the leader of the gunpowder plot, who, with Guy Fawkes, was caught attempting to blow up the Houses of Parliament on November the 4th, 1605, which is known today as Guy Fawkes Night, made famous by the masks in the film V for Vendetta. After the failed plot, the stone was concealed in the Worcestershire landscape by Humphrey Packington of Harvington Hall, a Catholic sympathizer, where Collins later uncovered a legend about the green stone that had existed for more than a century. Using historical research aided by psychic methods, Collins and his group of psychic questers discovered a mystical lineage they referred to as the Heritage, which was founded after the fall of the pharaoh Akhenaton that ended with the revival of ancient Egypt in occult circles during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The group found a number of other artifacts, including six more swords, all identical to the first Meania sword. The seven swords were brought together for the first time by Collins and his group in August 1992 and detailed in his book, The Seventh Sword, and later in Graham Phillips' work, The Green Stone. During the course of research into the Pennyroyal mystery, I managed to track down one of the original circle of psychic questers, Charles Topham, to discuss the experience of psychic questing, apportation, and how he obtained the two Meania swords that came into his possession. I hadn't really thought of the Penny Royal mystery in the context of psychic questing, you know, because like it, like while we were in it, to me it was like, you know, you're you're just you're justifying everything. These weird things are happening. People are writing me, having dreams about me. Right? Yeah. Telling yeah. me like last night. I mean, people I've never met just suddenly would the next day I'd wake up and there were there was an email. And it was like, I had this vision of you, right? And they would tell me a thing. And it was like most of it was like noise. You know what I mean? Like it was still interesting, but it was just a strange, right? But in it would be these little pieces that only meant something to me, which were specific to what I was looking at just at that moment that that it was it was defied the po- realm of possibility that it wasn't meant to be that connecting right and i'm not saying that something was like sending me a message 
It, it could just be transmissions and and those synced up. Somehow I synced with someone. I, I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to say that it's like there's someone that's playing chess. You know what I mean? It feels, it, like that, it, it, it feels like that, doesn't it? It feels like that. that but what you were saying, though, you know, you know, the psychic questing part of it and this this idea that it just it's crazy to think about it that way, that 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 there is a story unfolding that you're being guided and not that not that you're being guided, but everything that you you interact with that story, it unfolds in another in another way. Right. And 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 it it is so collective. You know, the Hellier thing was about and, and you know, your stuff with the Penny Royal, what I ended up doing with all the questing theory, I mean, all of the, the psychic stuff I had happening up until the present day, the things that happened with Ange, everybody in, in the Collins books, there were so many people involved with that. It wasn't just down to Andy Collins walking around the countryside, you know, and his mate Bernard and Debbie. There was lots of people involved that contributed. Uh, had suddenly one day somebody would wake up and they would be really psychic. They would get, they would wake up and go, I've got an image of a place and it's in Somerset and we've got to go there because blah, 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 blah. And they would be the hero for the day. All these people that had bits of the jigsaw, bits of the jigsaw would rise up and go, me, I've got something, I've got something. And the story would unfold because they contributed to it. You talk about the mythologizing, you know, the narrative and so forth. The narrative would change. It's like improv on, on a stage. People saying, well, I've got this, What well, you know, five people doing improv, like Saturday Night Live. And everybody that contributes to it changes the outcome. And everybody bounces off something the first person said. It really is like that. Everybody contributes something and it changes it all the time. I'm just beginning to realize narrative, everybody's input when they go, I've got an image of a tree on a high hill and it's got five stones around it and they'll get that image so you, you go to this place and something else will lead you to another place. And do you know, you could go to 500 square miles of desert with one cactus in it and it would lead, lead you to something else because place is it's just, it's linked to everything. It's a planet, it's organic. It's like a, everything is linked energetically, physically, mentally, clouds, movement, breeze. Germed, everything's linked at so many different levels to everything else. And in fact, you must know yourself from going through all of the things that you did, you know, cause and effect it becomes almost, uh, a, it's, um, it's a blind, really. We, we're programmed with it because of Newtonian physics, everything we grew up with, you do this, you get that. Even the magic, you do this ritual, you get that happen. I'm not, I really, I'm not so sure anymore. I think it's a lot more fluid. I, almost like a fluid electrical field, everything. What, you know, the Hellier thing was about and, and, you know, your stuff with the Penny Royal, what I ended up doing with all the questing theory, I mean, all of the, the psychic stuff I had happening up until the present day, the things that happened with Ange, everybody in, in the Collins books, there were so many people involved with that. It wasn't just down to Andy Collins walking around the countryside, you know, and his mate Bernard and Debbie. There was lots of people involved that contributed. Uh, had suddenly one day somebody would wake up and they would be really psychic. They would get, they would wake up and go, I've got an image of a place and it's in Somerset and we've got to go there because blah, 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 blah. And they would be the hero for the day. All these people that had bits of the jigsaw, bits of the jigsaw would rise up and go, me, I've got something, I've got something. And the story would unfold because they contributed to it. 
you talk about the mythologizing, you know, the narrative and so forth. The narrative would change. It's like improv on, on a stage. People saying, well, I've got this one, you know, five people do an improv like Saturday Night Live. And everybody that contributes to it changes the outcome. And everybody bounces off something the first person said. It really is like that. Everybody contributes something and it changes it all the time. I'm just beginning to realize narrative, everybody's input when they go, I've got an image of a tree on a high hill and it's got five stones around it and they'll get that image. So you, you go to this place and something else will lead you to another place. And do you know, you could go to 500 square miles of desert with one cactus in it and it would lead, lead you to something else because place is, is just, it's linked to everything. It's a planet, it's organic. It's like a, everything is linked energetically, physically, mentally, clouds, movement, breeze, germs. Everything is linked at so many different levels to everything else. Is Penny Royal, and Hellier for that matter, a form of psychic questing? The more that these mysteries have evolved, the more it seems that there is in fact an element of psychic questing to the way that the phenomena works. There's an unfolding that happens, like a flower blossoming. Some of the events that have happened and numerous details and evidence that we've discovered and uncovered have come from sources that couldn't have possibly realized the information they were providing to us would link to another piece of information from someone else. Each piece of the puzzle, each new piece of information seemed so personal to our journey into the mystery. And almost always, it was a piece of the puzzle that wouldn't have meant anything to anyone else except us. And specifically in that moment that we received it. We weren't receiving any of this information in a psychic way. There were no psychic transmissions or impressions. It was always a very real mechanism of transmission, either from another researcher or a witness or someone wholly uninvolved with the investigation who was compelled by some chance encounter or experience to supply us with a detail necessary to unlock another door and move us further down the road to whatever would be the next unfolding. And where the psychic questing that Charles Topham and Andrew Collins and others were exploring England in the 1970s involved actual attempts to receive psychic impressions or communicate with entities through Ouija boards or other magical means, the psychic questing that I think we're working with involves a specifically digital element. But both types of psychic questing, that of Andy Collins in the 1970s and 80s, and what we've been experiencing and interacting with, are related in the way that the method involves cybernetics and feedback loops, though I doubt traditional psychic questers would see it that way. When we talk about narratives defining us, the stories we tell ourselves, those are the inner edges of the loop. But the outer edge, the interaction between that narrative and the environment creates a personal folklore that exists outside of us and serves to define our reality even more. It reinforces the story by telling us it can't be coming from within and that it must be coming from the outside. And even the idea of interacting with the spirit of place is really about feedback loops. Psychic questing isn't new, and it definitely wasn't invented by Andrew Collins. It's been around for centuries, 
and Tibetan Buddhists have some of the oldest psychic questing traditions. Tibetan Buddhism refers to psychic questing as the terma, or hidden treasure tradition. Tibetan monks who engage in terma hunting are known as tertons, or treasure finders. Specifically, they were seekers and discoverers of ancient hidden Buddhist texts, or terma. The treasure they were looking for was hidden knowledge. The most powerful tertons could see all the terma that were hidden throughout Tibet and other countries. Their questing allowed them to receive transmissions that were in the form of canonical teachings, treasures that were taken from the earth and reconciled as treasures of the mind via transcendental recollections, pure visions, and astral visitations. Reading about the history of psychic questing and discovering its origins in Tibetan Buddhism and that the treasures the Tibetan psychic questers sought was referred to as terma, I had to wonder, like so many times in the pursuit of this mystery, the universe was having a bit of fun with us. That part of the terma we were pursuing manifested in the form of Guterma, Alexander Guterma, our very own terma, and a wink from whatever was orchestrating all of this that we were on the right path. written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging. Thank you.